You're listening to American Songcatcher, tracing the roots of American music from its cultured past to today's artists playing it forward. I'm folk musician Nicholas Edward Williams. traveler, a gentleman, a thief. The origin story of the legendary highwayman goes back centuries, where they were known to be as common as crows between the years of 1600 and 1800. These were well-mannered, well-dressed men that wore handkerchiefs to cover their face and used threats before violence with common greetings such as stand and deliver and your money or your life and punished those who didn't pay with certain death. Throughout the British Isles, these romanticized figures thrived and preyed on travelers by horseback. The journey was already hazardous under extremely poor road conditions, leaving many to write their wills before they left home. And far to keep her boat fine and gay, I went robbing on the king's The highwaymen in Ireland and Scotland were unique to this history. They were admired and revered as national patriots, referred to as Knights of the Road, seen as brave and courageous souls, because mainly they stole from the rich, particularly English landlords. Music historian Alan Lomax noted that songs of the highwaymen attacking the agents of the crown were very popular with both Irish and British peasants. By the 19th century, this occupation dwindled with the arrival of mounted police, who could keep up with the highwaymen on horseback. With capture and punishment automatically ruled as death by hanging, their reign of terror faded entirely, leaving stories and songs in their wake. One of Ireland's greatest highwaymen was a treacherous man named Patrick Fleming. Fleming wasn't just a thief. He was a vile criminal who impaired and killed countless numbers of civilians in his early days, even children. Over time, though, Fleming won the public over by focusing on robbing high-ranking officials in the English army. The story goes that while in hiding with his accomplices, the landlord of the house drowned their guns in water while they slept so that they would malfunction and had the authorities storm in, which landed Fleming in jail. He made a legendary escape from his cell by scrambling up a chimney, though it was recaptured and hanged in 1650. His heroic status maintained after death, with several poems and songs written in his infamy that can be traced back through widely circulated broadside ballad sheets, such as Patrick Fleming, He Was a Valiant Soldier, and The Downfall of the Whigs. Around 1850, songs like Jenny and Sporting Hero or Whiskey in the Bar also told of this historic highwayman. The great Irish song collector, Colm O'Loughlin, wrote in his 1939 book, Irish Street Ballads, that in 1870, his mother often sang a song that came from this very lineage called Whiskey in the Jar. As I was going over the far-famed Kerry Mountains, I met with Captain Farrell and his money he was counting. At first 
produced my pistol and I then produced my rapier. Take stand and deliver for you are a bold deceiver, musher and dumb a doo da One of the most widely performed traditional Irish songs in the country's history, Whiskey in the Jar, has several lyrical versions that take place throughout Ireland, telling the story of a highwayman who robs a military or government official and then is betrayed by his lover, often named Molly or Jenny, and she either reports his theft or replaces his ammunition with sand and water. Going over Gilgary Mountain, I met Colonel Pepper and his mummy, he was counting. When a great number of the Irish migrated to America and settled throughout the East Coast, as well as Appalachia and Ozark Mountain ranges, Whiskey in the Jar continued its evolution and can still be heard today in various forms. Due to the song's overtone towards the British, it was adopted in colonial America as a favorite. The setting of the song naturally turned to America instead of Ireland. The official became a captain or a colonel, and the protagonist's lover's names changed from Molly or Jenny to MZ or Ginny. The hero sometimes languishes in prison for his crimes, or he manages to escape with his brother, and they both hide in the mountains. Or he's just unruly on whiskey. Till I listed for a soldier boy with Corcoran's brigade, sir, for to fight for Uncle Sam. He'll lead us on to glory, ho, he'll lead us on to glory, ho, to save the stripes and stars. During the Civil War, the famed Fighting 69th Infantry, who were nearly all Irish, changed the lyrics and called the song, We'll Fight for Uncle Sam. The song refers to an Irish Civil War hero named Michael Corcoran, who led a brigade and famously refused to salute the visiting Prince of Wales. It also mentions General George B. McClellan, who was very popular with the Irish troops, but was replaced by Abraham Lincoln because he wouldn't fight aggressively. For centuries, the tradition of storytelling by the fireside was a mainstay of the Irish people. In the evenings after work or on Sunday after Mass, people would visit their neighbors, friends and relatives, where they would sit by the fire and share stories. Between those stories were songs, usually unaccompanied. John Fallen and Jack Larkin, they waited master home, and they buried him next to his claim on the side amongst the whole. By the 1960s, during folk revivals in the U.S. and the British Isles, through the rise of traditional Irish bands like the Clancy Brothers, these stories and songs moved into the pubs of Ireland, initiating the movement that today is referred to as Irish drinking songs. Whiskey in the Jar was thrusted into that scene by groups like the Dubliners and Irish metal band Tin Lizzy, which both galvanized and widened the song's popularity in mainstream culture. During the 50s and 60s in America, the song made its way through folk circles and into the hands of Pete Seeger, Burl Ives, and the Brothers Four. It was further popularized on the pop charts by a folk group called the Highwaymen, who also commercialized the African-American work song, Michael Row Your Boat Ashore. During its recycle in America, the song again had different names, like Kilgarry Mountain 
and folks like Peter, Paul, and Mary recorded their own rendition as Gilgara Mountain. Without a judge or jury For robbing Colonel Pepper In the morning so early Since the folk revival, Whiskey in the Jar has been covered by Jerry Garcia and David Grisman, Metallica, whose version became a hit in 14 countries, and on to eclectic groups from Iceland, Canada, Germany, Israel, Uruguay, France and England, in genres ranging from bluegrass to punk rock, American Celtic, Latin fusion, pop, and folk. Perhaps it's no mystery why Whiskey in the Jar has resounded so far from its original source and transcending so many genres. There's a simplicity that nods at tradition and a feeling of camaraderie that makes this rollicking tune easy and enjoyable to sing along to, especially while holding a pint in the air at a pub. You're listening to American Songcatcher. Grab your coat and get your hat. Leave your worry on the doorstep. Just direct your feet to the sunny side of the street. In the city of brotherly love, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Eleanor Fagan, widely known as Billie Holiday, was born on April 7th, 1915. Billy's mother was an unwed 19-year-old named Sadie Fagan, who was kicked out of her parents' home in Baltimore after becoming pregnant. Billy's father was Clarence Holliday, only 17 years old, who would later become a well-regarded jazz guitarist and banjoist with the famed Fletcher Henderson Orchestra, who played an integral role in developing the big band jazz and swing sound. Clarence left when Billy was only a baby and was rarely present throughout her life. Her mother Sadie eventually remarried in 1920, though it was short-lived and ended in divorce after just a few years. Billy and her mother struggled through extreme poverty, and because Sadie needed to work, cleaning houses and jobs on passenger rail cars, Billy was often left in the care of relatives. In grade school, she began skipping class so often that she and her mother went to juvenile court over truancy which led to Billy being sent off to a facility for troubled African-American girls outside of Baltimore called the House of Good Shepherd in early 1925. At nine years old, Billy was one of the youngest girls there. After less than a year, she was paroled back to her mother in 1926, though it's unclear why. Several months later, Sadie came home to find her neighbor, a man in his 40s, sexually assaulting Billy, though she managed to fight him off, and he was soon arrested. Some reports state that Billy was sent back to Good Shepherd to protect her, while other sources say it was because she, quote, seduced her attacker. 
The nuns claimed that she was rebellious, out of control, and decided to teach her a lesson one day. So they locked Billy in a room with dead bodies overnight to scare her. Despite the irrational treatment, the Catholic Reformatory did provide one crucial silver lining. At daily mass, Billy would sing ceremonial chants, learning the foundations of melody that she would perfect and authenticate over the years to come. To that new living, I won't ever stray, cause this is heaven to me. When she was 11 or 12, Billy left the institution and got a job cleaning the kitchen and bathroom floors of homes in the neighborhood and at a nearby brothel, scrubbing the marble steps. Brothel had a wind-up talking machine that played records, sometimes through open windows. Billy wanted to get closer to those records, so she ran errands for the owner and did whatever else was needed, just so that she could listen more. And that's where she first heard songs like West End Blues, which featured a scat section that stayed with her. More importantly, she discovered the famous black American blues artists of the 1920s, like Bessie Smith and Louis Armstrong, whose horn playing became one of her greatest vocal influences. As the Great Depression hit, her mother moved to the bustling city of Harlem, searching for work. Their landlord in Harlem also owned a brothel not far away, and Sadie became a sex worker. So did 13-year-old Billy. Just a few months later, the house was raided by police, and they were both sent to prison. Sadie spent time in a workhouse and was released after two months, while Billy spent more than five months in a juvenile facility before she was finally released. Despite the arrest, hard times in the throes of the Great Depression didn't leave many options. So for the next two or three years, Billy continued to support herself on the streets until she was arrested for solicitation. After she was released, things got dire. Billy said, one day we were so hungry that we could barely breathe. I started out the door. I was cold as all hell, and I walked from 145th to 133rd down 7th Avenue, going into every joint trying to find work. After many unsuccessful attempts, she stopped by a spot called Pods and Jerry's. Billy had no money, but she asked the owner, Jerry Preston, for a gin, having never had a drink before. She gulped it down and asked him for a job dancing. Billy recalled, he said to dance, I tried it. He said I stunk, I told him I could sing. He said sing. Over in the corner was an old guy playing a piano. He struck traveling and I sang. I'm so weary and all alone. Feet are tied like heavy stone, traveling, traveling, all alone. The customers stopped drinking. They turned around and watched. The pianist, Dick Wilson, swung into body and soul. Geez, you should have seen those people. All of them started crying. Preston came over, shook his head, and said, Kid, you win. The crowd gave her $18 in tips, just over $300 in today's money. She got a sandwich ran out the door, bought a whole chicken, and her and her mother 
would never go hungry again. Saw me standing alone without a dream in my heart, without a love of my own. Preston hired Billy to sing for $18 a week. She made debuts in obscure Harlem nightclubs, sharing tips with dancers and comedians on the bill. It was around this time that she took on the stage name Billie Holiday. Billie came from one of her favorite silent movie actresses, Billy Dove. And initially, she spelled her last name Halliday, H-A-L-L-I-D-A, then changed it to Holiday from her father's last name. She quickly became an active participant in what's considered one of the most vibrant jazz scenes in history, when the Harlem Renaissance transitioned into the swing era. Though Billy's range was limited, and she didn't project like powerful blues and pop singers did, it was her authentic intonation, rhythm and phrasing, soaked in emotional delivery, that set her apart. Billy teamed up with her neighbor, a tenor saxophone player named Kenneth Holland, and the two performed regularly around Harlem from 1929 to 1931, and even reconnected with her father, who was now playing with Fletcher Henderson. One night, while singing at Coven's in Harlem, 17-year-old Billy had recently taken a jazz singer named Monette Moore's place at the club. She was discovered that night by famed record producer John Hammond, a descendant of the Vanderbilt family who was only 22 at the time. He came to see Monette, but instead was blown away by Billy. He invited her to Columbia Records the next year, where she recorded for the first time with a studio group, led by none other than a budding clarinetist named Benny Goodman. Two sides were released, called Your Mother's Son-in-Law and Riffin on Scotch, the latter of which was her first top 10 pop hit. I jumped out of the frying pan and right into the fire when I lost me a cheating man and got a no-count lie. In July 1935, Hammond organized another landmark recording session in jazz music. It included the legendary Teddy Wilson on piano, Gene Krupa on drums, and Benny Goodman on clarinet for the first release of the Benny Goodman Trio with After You've Gone, and body and soul. Just a few days after that session, Hammond brought Billy, now signed with Brunswick Records, to record pop tunes in the budding swing style with horn players Roy Eldridge, Ben Webster, and Benny Goodman, along with band leader and pianist Teddy Wilson. That session, has been decidedly named one of the most inspiring pairings in jazz history. The following year, Billy released her own version of Summertime which was first unveiled in the celebrated 1935 American opera Porgy and Bess, written by Grammy Hall of Fame pianist and composer George Gershwin. Around this time, 
Billy met and befriended acclaimed saxophonist Lester Young after he stayed at her mother's boarding house while traveling through town. Young was part of Count Basie's orchestra on and off for years, and his complimentary tone was a perfect counterpart to Billy's. Starting in 1937, the two began a historic string of collaborations, some of which are among the greatest jazz recordings of all time, with songs like He's Funny That Way, Travelin' All Alone, and Easy Livin', to name a few. Young also gave Billy the nickname Lady Day, and in return she called him Prez, as in president of the tenor saxophonists. Perhaps at the insistence of Lester Young, Billy was invited to join Count Basie's big band orchestra in 1937, albeit briefly. Touring was not something that Billy was used to, performing one-nighters in some of the worst clubs throughout the South, moving from city to city, as opposed to the stable residency gigs that she'd been doing. Additionally, she was light-skinned, and the band was all dark. In Detroit, a theater manager insisted that she blacken her face so that the audience wouldn't mistake her for white and get angry that she was performing with black musicians. Another band member remembered, Billy always put an extra hamburger in her purse because she'd never know when someone would refuse to serve her. We stayed in black hotels, but Billy often had to sleep in the car or bus. She couldn't use public toilets. I'm pulling through and it's because of you. The presence of saxophonist Lester Young, who had become like a brother to Billy, was the only way that she got through being in Count Basie's orchestra. He was her soulmate, though not her lover, according to their contemporaries. Being in the group did afford her the chance to tour Europe, where she was paid the most money that she'd seen to that point, at $14 a day. She was relentless when it came to the songs that she sang. As Count Basie recalled, she knew how she wanted to sound, and you couldn't tell her what to do. With Count's group, Billy found herself in direct competition with the popular singer Ella Fitzgerald, whom she later became friends with. Ella was the vocalist for the rival Chick Webb Band. On January 16, 1938, there was a friendly battle between the two groups at the Savoy Ballroom in Harlem. After a straw poll from the audience, Ella and the Chick Webb Band were declared winners by a three-to-one margin. The next month, Billy was fired with a range of explanations as to why. Jimmy Rushing, who was the male vocalist in Count's group, said that she was unprofessional. Other sources state that she was temperamental and unreliable, that she complained of low pay and poor working conditions, and refused to sing songs requested of her or change her style. Billy said that there were too many managers controlling too much, and that she wasn't fired, but gave Count Basie her notice. Regardless, a month later, Billy was given a rare and momentous opportunity when she was hired to work 
with one of jazz's most historic clarinetists, Artie Shaw. Working with Artie Shaw was breaking entirely new ground because he and his orchestra were all white, making Billy one of the first female African-American vocalists to do so. Promoters, however, were vehemently opposed to this decision, both because she was black and because of her odd vocal style. The collaboration started all right, but as Billy recounted, things changed. Pretty soon, it got so I would sing just two numbers a night. When I wasn't singing, I had to stay backstage. Artie wouldn't let me sit out in front with the band. When we were at the Lincoln Hotel, the hotel management told me that I had to use the back door. I had to ride up and down in the freight elevators just to sing one or two numbers. And every night, Artie made me stay upstairs in a little room without a radio or anything all the time. Finally, one night, Artie Shaw said that he couldn't let her sing, and that was it. They had recorded only one collaboration together, a song called Any Old Time, and Shaw never paid Billy for it. Any old time you want me, I am yours for just the asking, darling. Any old time you need me, I'll be there with love that's lasting, darling. With Count Basie, Billy made $70 a week. With Artie, $65. On her own, Billy could get $150, which was another reason why it made sense to leave. She got a residency at a new venue in Greenwich Village called Cafe Society, which happened to be the country's first racially integrated nightclub. There, Billy was approached with a song by a poet named Abel Mirapal. It was first a poem called Bitter Fruit, and after adding music to it, specifically crafted for Billy, he called it Strange Fruit. depictions about lynching black men in the southern United States were extremely controversial words to be sung or said in public at the time. The owner of Cafe Society, Barney Josephson, said, It was a shocking piece of material. She felt it very deeply. White people walked out. They said they came to be entertained. Columbia said that it was too inflammatory and refused to record it. So she went to a small independent label, Commodore Records, where she was given carte blanche. The song would sell a million copies, despite the odds stacked against her. Strange Fruit was banned from radio stations, but the other side was a blues tune written by Billy called Fine and Mellow, which became a jukebox hit. Strange Fruit is considered by scholars to be one of the first protest songs of the civil rights era and one of the most important songs in history. Two years before the song released in 1939, Congress refused to pass a bill that would make lynchings a federal crime. The following year, Billy received a warning from the newly created Federal Bureau of Narcotics, or FBN, to stop performing the song. She refused, and thus became a target, 
sparking a decades-long battle between her and the United States government. The first commissioner of the FBN, Harry Anslinger, was considered extremely racist, even by 1930s standards. He coined the idea of the war on drugs decades before Nixon. He hated marijuana, even played a big part in its classification as a Schedule I substance, equal to heroin. Anslinger targeted minorities, especially black people, and he despised jazz music. He was noted for saying that drugs caused black people to overstep their place in society, and that jazz singers created the devil's music. When Billy continued to sing Strange Fruit, Anslinger waged war. Despite being told by his bosses to drop it, he remained obsessed with Billie Holiday and set out to make her life miserable until the bitter end. But first, he needed someone on the inside. Oh, Though he was extremely reluctant, Anslinger hired a black agent, known as a bagman, named Jimmy Fletcher, who was tasked with following Billie Holiday everywhere that she went, befriending her, documenting her drug use, and getting a case ready for an indictment. He wore a serviceman's uniform and posed as a wide-eyed fan who hung around until she grew to like him, and eventually won her trust. Jimmy followed Billie on tours, and even though he loathed addicts, he was drawn to her vulnerabilities and loving nature. And over the next several years, they got very, very close. Some even say that they fell in love. While her popularity was rapidly growing, with Time magazine calling her Woman of the Year in 1939, Billy's personal life was on shaky ground. She married trombonist Jimmy Monroe on August 25, 1941, who was dubbed the worst type of parasite that you could imagine by someone close to her. She had preferred marijuana throughout the 1930s and had been drinking heavily for many years, but it was Monroe who first gave Billy opium. Not long after, she started using heroin, and most of her income went to cover her increasing addiction. Her drug dealer was a trumpeter named Joe Guy, who she began having an affair with. The marriage to Monroe didn't last. She found lipstick on his collar one day and simply said, don't explain, which produced a song of the same name. And they divorced in 1947. Don't explain. Kissing. Oh, what I've been missing. Love a man, oh, where can you be? In 1944, Billy signed with the prestigious Decca Records and immediately scored a big hit with the strings-laden tune, Loverman, Aware Can You Be. That hit led to a duet with her musical hero, Louis Armstrong, who also became a friend. Their session in New Orleans would be their only time in the studio together, but it produced two classic sides, My Sweet Hunk of Trash and You Can't Lose a Broken Heart. Cause you can't lose a broken heart Look out, don't lose your head Then lose your gown You can't lose a broken heart 
After the death of her mother in October of 1945, Billy's grief and complicated past led to more heavy drinking and an escalating drug consumption. Jazz singer Sylvia Sims, who received informal training from Billy, recalled from the early 1940s that she really dug being high, but I never knew anyone with such capacity. All of a sudden, whiskey was not enough. She'd use heroin and cocaine at the same time. Two years after the DECA session with Louis Armstrong, Billy appeared as a singing maid named Endy, who falls in love with him, in the film New Orleans, her only major motion picture. Its original version, however, was amended. Due to McCarthyism, inherent racism of the times, along with other blacklisted writers and directors, infamously labeled the Hollywood Ten, many scenes with Billy were deleted from the film, and the main roles were taken by relatively unknown white actors. Despite that, there's over 20 New Orleans-style Dixieland jazz numbers featured, and Billy sings, Do You Know What It Means to Miss New Orleans, The Blues Are Bruin, as well as her own rendition of Farewell to Storyville, while she leads a long procession of blacks through the street. By 1947, at 32 years old, Billy was at a peak financially and in the public eye, having made $250,000 over three years. Her relationship with Jimmy Monroe ended in divorce that year, as did her affair with her drug dealer, Joe Guy. In May of 1947, Billy performed Strange Fruit during a show in Philadelphia. Having enough for an indictment and aiming to defame her at the pinnacle of her career, the undercover agent, who had become a close companion, Jimmy Fletcher, organized a raid of her brother-in-law's apartment where she was staying that night. Fletcher later said, quote, she was drinking enough booze to stun a horse and hoovering up vast quantities of cocaine. There are varying accounts of how it played out, but Billy was arrested and put on trial for possession of narcotics in what would be hailed the United States versus Billy Holiday. And that's just the way it felt, she later said. Lonely grief is hounding me like a lonely shadow hounding me. At the trial, dehydrated and unable to hold down food, she was advised to plead guilty by the district attorney so that she could be sent to a hospital. Billy said that she, quote, simply wanted the cure, but the judge wasn't in favor and sentenced Billy to 366 days at the Alderson Federal Prison Camp, a reformatory for women in West Virginia, adding that the government was going to give her, quote, Benevolent treatment at the reformatory. Good morning, honey, you old gloomy sight. Good morning, honey, thought we said goodbye last night. After enduring an upending detox from alcohol, cocaine, and heroin, Billy reportedly didn't sing a word while in prison. She was released for good behavior in March of 1948, a few months shy of her sentence. Upon release, the federal government refused to renew her cabaret performer's license, a form of ID required for all musicians and entertainers to work in any establishment where alcohol was served, aka the primary venues that jazz musicians relied on to make a living. Unsurprisingly, it was Henry Anslinger's recommendation that the license be denied. As he said, listening to her might harm the morals of the public. Despite performing two sold-out shows at Carnegie Hall just 10 days after her release, 
Billy was severely limited in venue options for more than a decade afterwards. I say I'll go through fire And I'll go through fire As he wants it, so it will be Anslinger didn't stop there. He got a narcotics agent named Colonel George White to set Billy up at the Mark Twain Hotel in San Francisco in 1949. Without a warrant, agents raided her hotel room, though it was never entered into evidence. Billy insisted the rest of her life that she'd been clean for over a year and that the dope was planted in her room by George White. The same day of her arrest, Billy offered to go into a clinic where she could be monitored for withdrawal symptoms, proving that she's been framed. She checked herself into the clinic for $1,000 and, quote, didn't shiver. With a lawyer present at this trial in 1949, she was found not guilty. You must remember this. A kiss is still a kiss. A sigh is just a sigh. In 1952, Billy began a five-year run with Norman Grant's pioneering Jazz at the Philharmonic series, where she was placed into small jazz combos, just like the days of her initial success. Under his label, Clef Records, Norman and Billy made roughly 100 new recordings, just as the world was entering what's now considered the golden age of high-fidelity albums. Billy expanded her repertoire, re-recorded many of her 1930s classics, and continued to tour. She redefined herself as the Torch Singer and appeared on The Tonight Show with Steve Allen on CBS's historic The Sound of Jazz program, had a hugely successful tour of Europe, and joined the bill on September 25, 1954, with Count Basie's orchestra at Carnegie Hall. Billy also appeared on the ABC reality series, The Comeback Story, in 1953. It's an important story, lady, that you have to tell for us. For many people have taken beauty into their lives out of the bitterness of yours. And because of that, no comeback has been too tough for you to take. We have said that to understand the story of Hey there, baby, make up your mind. Cause I've been waiting such a long, long time. Now, baby, I'll never. Billy had a long history of relationships with abusive men. John Levy, who was referred to as a dirty, rotten, stinking bastard, a parasite, became her manager and lover after her second divorce. Then she got involved with Louis McKay, a mob enforcer. He regularly beat Billy up, often kept her under lock and key, and even starved her, and she grew very thin. The two got arrested for narcotics in 1956, reportedly in a sting operation by Henry Anslinger, and got married in Mexico the following year. Like many other men in her life, McKay used Billy to advance himself, and eventually stole everything that she had. You like tomato and I like tomato. Potato, potato, tomato, tomato. Let's call the whole thing off. 
When Billie shared her life story in 1956 in the autobiography, Lady Sings the Blues, she sent a signed copy to the secret agent, Jimmy Fletcher. Inside, she wrote, Most federal agents are nice people. They've got a dirt job to do, and they have to do it. Some of the nicer ones have feelings enough to hate themselves sometimes for what they have to do. Maybe they would have been kinder to me if they'd been nasty. Then I wouldn't have trusted them enough to believe what they told me. Fletcher claimed that he felt guilty for the rest of his life about what he did. He's the lowest man that I've ever seen. In 1957, Billy reunited with saxophonist Lester Young for a brief appearance on CBS television that is among the most cherished moments of jazz captured on screen when they performed Fine and Mellow. The following year, Billy returned to the prestigious Columbia Records thanks to none other than John Hammond, who had been instrumental in her success when she was just 18 years old. It had been 16 years since she'd been at Columbia, and she wanted the album to be in the same contemporary vein of Frank Sinatra or Ella Fitzgerald with a backdrop of full orchestral arrangements. The end result was her swan song masterpiece record titled Lady in Satin. Love is funny, I'd say. It's quiet, it's mad. Billy's final studio recordings were made in March of 1959, the same month that her longtime friend Lester Young would pass away from drinking at age 49. She separated from her husband and filed for divorce when he lost a great deal of her money and a faulty investment. The papers would not have a chance to be signed, though. Her final public appearance was at the Phoenix Theater in New York City on May 25, 1959. Four days later, Billy collapsed at a friend's apartment and while waiting on a stretcher for an hour and a half at Manhattan's Knickerbocker Hospital, she was turned away because of her drug history as an addict. Would they be angry if I thought of joining you? Blue Back in January of that year, Billy had been diagnosed with cirrhosis of the liver and had initially stopped drinking, as per doctor's orders, but relapsed. By May, she'd lost 20 pounds, and everyone in her inner circle all tried desperately to get her to go to a hospital. When she collapsed, ostensibly, she was recognized by one of the ambulance drivers, who admitted Billy to the public ward of Metropolitan Hospital. She had heroin withdrawal, and when she was given a methadone treatment, Henry Anslinger's men showed up to raid the room. The narcotic squad claimed to find a tinfoil envelope containing less than an eighth of an ounce of heroin hanging on a nail on the wall, six feet from Billy's frail body. Too ill to be taken into custody, she was handcuffed to her bed. They prevented hospital staff from administering any further prescribed medication, barred any visitors, including family, friends, or well-wishers, and got rid of any gifts given to her. Outside the hospital, protesters gathered on the streets holding up signs, reading, let Lady Live. On July 17, 
1959, Billie Holiday passed away from pulmonary edema and heart failure caused by cirrhosis of the liver at the age of 44. After decades of top-selling records, she had just $750 strapped to her leg and 70 cents in the bank at the time of her death. Billy's funeral was held four days later at a nearby Catholic church. Thousands of people attended, spilling out from the church into the street. The logistics of Billy's death were left to her estranged husband, Louis McKay. He thought she should be buried alongside her mother, Sadie, at St. Raymond's Cemetery in the Bronx. However, a year after her death, she still had no tombstone, not even a grave plot. Outrage erupted, and Chicago's long-standing downbeat magazine started a fund to pay for a tombstone, but McKay objected. Billy and Sadie's remains were eventually moved to the St. Paul section of the cemetery, where today they share a tombstone. Strange fruit hanging from the poplar trees. Those close to Billy said that she didn't actually enjoy singing Strange Fruit because it was dark and painful and reminded her of her father Clarence, who died in Texas after being denied care at a whites-only hospital. But the song became more than just a piece of music. It was too culturally important not to play, clearly, since she was being targeted by the government. But Billy wanted black people to be able to enter venues without fear and sit anywhere in the room. So it was written into her performance contracts, non-negotiable. It would be the last song of her set, and she demanded silence where she wouldn't sing. The entire room would go dark, the singular light on her face. When it was over, the room went dark again for a few seconds. Then the lights would come back, and Billy would be gone. Henry Anslinger persecuted many black musicians during his career, including Thelonious Monk, Charlie Parker, Dizzy Gillespie, Duke Ellington, and Louis Armstrong. In his later years, Anslinger had a mental breakdown with intense paranoia and irrational thoughts. He truly believed that addiction was contagious and that addicts needed to be quarantined and was eventually hospitalized because of it. By 1973, Anslinger went blind and was diagnosed with angina. Ironically, When he died of heart failure in 1975, he was addicted to morphine, which had been prescribed for his heart problems from angina. Despite all of his efforts, including a heavy hand in her death, Billie Holiday never stopped singing Strange Fruit, and her legacy would not die with her.
Lacking any formal training, Billie Holiday is considered among the greatest jazz vocalists of all time. She once said, I do not think I'm singing. I feel like I'm playing a horn. What comes out is what I feel. I have to change a tune to my own way of doing it. That is all I know. Her candid, poignant approach influenced countless musicians, from Nina Simone to Joni Mitchell to Frank Sinatra, who called her his greatest single musical influence. She's been nominated for 23 Grammy Awards, all posthumously, with recordings inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame and the Library of Congress's National Recording Registry. Billy was also inducted into the ASCAP Jazz Wall of Fame, the Erdogan Jazz Hall of Fame, and the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. The way you've changed my life. No, no, they can't take that away from me. No, they can't take that away from me. Hey, folks, here at American Songcatcher. We've got just a few volunteer hands working together to make each monthly episode. Right now, about 65 people contribute each month to cover expenses. However, this program has over 10,000 listeners in over 50 countries, thanks to grassroots word-of-mouth growth. This model isn't sustainable, however. So, following the end of Season 2 in just a few months, we're going to do a fundraiser to make Season 3 all that it can be. And your contribution is imperative. See the show notes in this episode to directly support American Songcatcher. You're listening to American Songcatcher. Halfway between Atlanta and Augusta, Sanders Terrell, better known as Sonny Terry, was born on October 24, 1911, near Greensboro, Georgia. His father, Reuben, was a poor farmer who played harmonica in the evenings to wind down and occasionally offered reels and jigs at local parties. Reuben always put his harmonica away on a high shelf each night where it was out of reach. One day, when he left for work, young Sonny climbed up, got the harmonica down, and gave it a blow. He kept this up for weeks until one time when he didn't put it back in the exact place that his father left it. Reuben noticed when he came home and asked him if he'd been playing it. Sonny's mother interjected that he'd been playing a tune for her every day. Glad to see his keen interest, Reuben decided to teach Sonny to really play and started giving him lessons on mimicking sounds of the trains rolling by, the baying call of hounds, barnyard animals, and the blues. In addition to his father's teachings, Sonny learned to sing at church tent meetings as early as age five or six. Around that time, his family moved to Rockingham, North Carolina, where at the age of 11, Sonny was blinded in one eye after an incident with some kids playing a game, and he began to avoid other children. Five years later, he was blinded in the other eye when a lump of iron hit his face. Completely blind by age 16, Sonny wasn't able to do farm work and spent the majority of his time playing harmonica. When his family moved again to Shelby, North Carolina, Sonny was exposed to the local Piedmont style of blues for the first time, listening to musicians in the city center. He began playing with a white group at local fish fries, started busking on the streets for small change, and joined a local medicine show that went around the nearby towns. 
from my childhood where I am now. I ain't gonna worry, I'll get by somehow. My mama had them, my daddy had them too. I was born with the On the cusp of the Great Smoky Mountains, Walter Brown McGee, widely known as Brownie McGee, was born in Knoxville, Tennessee on November 30th, 1915. His father, George, was a factory worker who was known around University Avenue for playing guitar and singing. At just four years old, Brownie contracted polio, which affected the growth of his right leg and left him with a permanent limp. His brother, Granville, nicknamed Stick, would push him around on a cart because he had such a hard time walking. Stick would go on to be a successful musician in his own right, writing the hit song Drinkin' Wine Spodiote in 1945 with pioneering African-American producer J. Mayo or Inc. Williams, who discovered legends like Ma Rainey and Papa Charlie Jackson. Unable to play with the other kids, like Sonny, Brownie stuck to himself and spent his early days immersed in music, singing with the local harmony group and learning to play a tin marshmallow box with a piece of board that his uncle made into a guitar. By the time he was eight, Brownie had taught himself how to play his father's guitar, ukulele, banjo, and the rudiments of the piano, which eventually led to the organ and church. When the family moved to Maryville, Tennessee, while Brownie was still in high school, he had surgery funded from polio support programs that enabled him to walk. Soon after, in 1928, he dropped out of school to join the minstrel life and play guitar with his father's group, the Golden Voices Gospel Quartet. He began hoboing around Tennessee, North Carolina, and West Virginia, scrounging up change by singing in beer taverns and roadhouses, on buses, trains, street corners, and at mining camps, where he played the blues for blacks and hillbilly music for whites. When his father Reuben died, Sonny had fully absorbed his teachings, and then some, largely inspired by famed harmonica player DeFord Bailey, the first black musician to be a member of WSM Radio's The Grand Old Opry. DeFord was one of the Opry's earliest stars who grew up in the black hillbilly music tradition and was heard throughout the country on the program from 1927 through 1941. Sonny learned a great deal from listening to DeFord and pioneered his own energetic way of playing by adding snorts and cries, whoops and hollers, animal imitations, a style that he later called whoopin'. Sonny traveled around the Piedmont area of North Carolina, playing the streets in the late 1920s. And while visiting his brother near Charlotte in 1934, he met a blind, well-known Piedmont blues guitarist named Fulton Allen, better known as Blind Boy Fuller, who convinced him to move to Durham. The tobacco town of Durham, North Carolina, had a vibrant, thriving black community of working-class citizens who could multiply their pay working for tobacco companies rather than sharecropping. The Bull City, as it was called, 
was home to black entrepreneurs on the historic Parrish Street, which, since the early 1900s, had been dubbed the Black Wall Street. The Haiti neighborhood, particularly, became an essential stop for black activists, entertainers, and academics traveling through Durham up through the Civil Rights era. During the Great Depression in the mid-1930s, poverty and food insecurity increased acutely, though through mutual aid, the black neighborhoods of Durham banded together. Oral histories reflect that even though people were poor, they didn't feel poor because their basic needs were met, and they noted the ways that communities would share and take care of one another. Durham was the hotbed for the Piedmont Blues style in the mid-1930s, with Reverend Gary Davis, Bull City Red, Blind Boy Fuller, and Sonny Terry at the forefront. They busked on the street corners of Haiti and performed at fish fries and house parties to make ends meet. The blend of Blind Boy Fuller's rapid picking and Sonny's wails and moans on harmonica was a sound that blacks could immediately understand. And starting in 1937, their records sold well, despite rarely being given proper compensation. Meanwhile, Brownie McGee was a hardworking musician on the road, gaining recognition for his fine finger-picking, similar to his hero, Blind Boy Fuller. Brownie joined the popular Rabbit Foot Minstrels, who toured throughout the South with carnivals and medicine shows. After Brownie tried and failed to form a group with harmonica master Jordan Webb, in the late 1930s, they went back to North Carolina, to a town called Burlington, about 30 minutes west of Durham. There, Webb introduced Brownie to a washboard player named George O'Red Washington, who played in a trio with Blind Boy Fuller and Reverend Gary Davis. Through O'Red, Brownie got the attention of talent scout J.B. Long, who was the manager for both Fuller and Davis. In 1937, two years after Blind Boy Fuller and Reverend Gary Davis were discovered and signed to the American Recording Company, Fuller took Sonny Terry with him for a second recording session. Half of the 11 songs cut featured Sonny accompanying on harmonica. From then on, Sonny Terry was with Fuller at all of his recording sessions and performances, which became extremely popular among blacks across the South. When I had money I had women and friends for miles around. A year later, J.B. Long invited Sonny Terry over to meet the president of Columbia Records, Goddard Lieberson, as well as John Hammond, who listeners may recall from Billie Holiday's story, and had a large role in bringing Bessie Smith back to recording in 1933. Hammond was looking for talent for the first installment of the renowned Spirituals to Swing concert at Carnegie Hall featuring a who's-who lineup of gospel, jazz, and blues acts, such as Sister Rosetta Tharp, Big Bill Brunzi, and the Count Basie Orchestra. Hammond was hoping to meet Blind Boy Fuller, though he was apparently behind bars at the time for shooting his wife in the leg. But as soon as he heard Sonny's harmonica playing, he found the talent that he was looking for. That December, an unknown Sonny Terry tapped his feet and wailed out Mountain Blues and the new John Henry before an all-white, full-capacity audience of music aficionados and he received ecstatic applause.
Sonny Terry first met Brownie McGee through J.B. Long in 1939 and performed together as an accompaniment to celebrated singer, actor, and activist Paul Robeson in Washington, D.C. the following year. Also in 1940, Blind Boy Fuller had surgery due to complications of syphilis and had an infection in his bladder, kidneys, and digestive tract. When Fuller was unable to make a recording session, J.B. Long persuaded Columbia's sister label, OK Records, to give Brownie an audition. Brownie's first recording session was in August of 1940 in Chicago with Jordan Webb on harmonica and the washboard player George O'Red Washington. Notable among the dozen that were tracked was Me and My Dog, My Barking Bulldog Blues, and Picking My Tomatoes. You've been picking my tomatoes While Brownie's career was just starting, Blind Boy Fuller's time was coming to an end. His last two recording sessions were both in 1940, and his compounding health problems persisted until he passed away in early 1941. Just three months later, with mounting pressure from Columbia and OK Records to keep pushing out commercially successful songs like Fuller's, J.B. Long convinced Brownie to cut a song called The Death of Blind Boy Fuller, and it was released under the name Blind Boy Fuller No. 2. He's gone, blind boy Fuller's gone away. Brownie didn't want a career as an impersonator of his hero, so that pseudonym was short-lived. JB encouraged Brownie to play with Sonny Terry, since Fuller was no longer around. But in 1941, Sonny had moved to New York City, into an old loft building in Greenwich Village. His friend, Reverend Gary Davis, had also moved to Harlem nearby, and it didn't take long for Sonny to befriend village locals like Woody Guthrie, Cisco Houston, Burl Ives, The Almanacs, Lead Belly, and Josh White. Later in 1941, Brownie was in New York City for another session with OK and Sonny was scheduled to record after him. He invited Sonny to play second harmonica on one song and accompany solo on the other. It went well enough that J.B. Long asked Brownie to be Sonny's lead boy and back him on the guitar for a concert in Washington, D.C., opening for Lead Belly. There, he introduced himself to the Library of Congress personnel, and folklorist Alan Lomax recorded the two at the historic Coolidge Auditorium for the Archive of Folk Song, formally associating them with authentic Southern blues. A great migration of musicians were flocking to New York City after World War II ended in the mid-1940s, and the village and Washington Square Park in particular held the earliest seeds of the folk and blues revival. When Brownie moved there, the timing couldn't have been better, and he and Sonny dove into a flourishing scene of progressive minds, artists, activists, bohemians, and poets, where jazz, boogie-woogie, blues, and folk music were all thriving. They took advantage, recording prolifically with Moses Ash of Folkways Records, and had gigs aplenty at private parties, on Lomax's wartime armed forces radio programs, along with Woody Guthrie, and in the college and coffeehouse circuit, both as a duo and individually. Sunrise, rise in the east, 
sets up in the west Well, it's hard to tell which one will treat you the best In 1947, Brownie performed on the soundtrack for the motion picture The Roosevelt Story, covering the private and public life of FDR. This was the first time that Brownie started writing his own compositions. Among his better-known songs are My Fault, as well as Sport and Life, based on the last letter that he received from his mother. Well, I want to marry and, and settle down This old sporting life It is a mean life And it's killing me in 1946, Sonny got a part in the long-running Broadway production of Finian's Rainbow, which ran for over a thousand performances. He was paid $600 a week for his part, over $9,000 in today's money, and remained in the show for two years. Meanwhile, Brownie was showcasing his versatility as a guitarist with his Jump Blues outfit, both on records and in black clubs around Harlem and New Jersey. He put out two rhythm and blues hit singles, My Fault in 1948 and New Baseball Boogie in 1949. By the 1950s, Sonny and Brownie expanded their horizons and traveled extensively outside of New York City and recorded for several labels. From 1955 to 1957, they also accepted small roles for the Pulitzer Prize-winning Broadway hit, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, which exposed them to an even broader audience. With the resurgent interest in traditional music in the late 1950s and early 1960s, they performed at numerous folk and blues festivals around the world on five continents, playing hundreds of dates each year. Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee had become national household names. This is a part of my life too, don't worry about it. Howdy, California, everything's fine. All I'm catching is drinking that wine. Esteemed television appearances, such as the BBC concert in 1974, which you're hearing now, as well as Pete Seeger's Rainbow Quest, was a further testament to their popularity among white mainstream audiences across the world. Do you know actually how long me and you've been together? Yeah, put a close around about 33 years. It's a long time to be with a man, ain't it? Even though they bantered like old friends on the 1973 album, Sonny and Brownie, outside of the studio, they rarely talked to each other. Brownie was living in Oakland, California, whereas Sonny stayed in New York City. In these later years, they also refused to travel together, making sure that they took separate planes on tours. It got to the point where they would be billed as a duo, but Sonny would play with a different guitarist, then Brownie would come out and do a solo set. The last time that they appeared together was in the 1979 film, The Jerk, starring Steve Martin, playing the part of family friends who helped him find his joy for music in the intro and outro of the film. Singing and dancing down in Mississippi. Having performed 11 months out of the year on and off from 1958 to 1979, the personalities of these two staunch individualists outgrew their partnership. They no longer had to depend on each other for inspiration, money, or fame. In an interview with the New York Times, Brownie, who was more vocal in the media, stated that, Sonny does what he wants to do as an artist, and I do what I want to do. 
Sonny retired from touring in the early 1980s and rarely performed. In 1984, he made an album with guitarist Johnny Winter and legendary blues musician Willie Dixon called Whoopin' that mixed several styles and exposed his harp style to a new generation of blues fans. In 1986, he was in the film Crossroads, covering the mythical story of Robert Johnson and performed a cover of Johnson's Crossroad Blues, as well as Walkin' Away Blues with Rye Cooter for the soundtrack. Three days before it released in theaters, Sonny Terry died of natural causes in Mineola, New York in March of 1986 at the age of 74. Brownie's recordings and performances dwindled through the 1980s until he had essentially retired from music. He appeared in the film Angel Heart in 1987 and in an episode of the TV sitcom Family Ties in 1988. In the mid-90s, he had a change of heart and staged a comeback with the album The Last Great Blues Hero, released in 1995, right before he was scheduled to tour Australia. On the record, Brownie's picking and spirit is lively as ever. However, with his declining health, the tour to Australia was canceled. His last performance would be at the Chicago Blues Festival in late 1995. After years of battling with stomach cancer, Brownie McGee passed away on February 16, 1996, in Oakland, California, at the age of 80. People, if you want to go somewhere and you don't have railroad fare, plane fare, train fare, boat fare, or don't have no fare, period, that's one way of getting there. I've been using the method for 25 years or more, me and old Sonny, and it seemed to have paid off. So hire that, man. Just walk on. Well, let's go. Walk on, walk on, walk on, walk on. While this story, and anyone who appreciates the historical significance of their music together, will equate Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee as a unit, both of these men have legacies that stand alone. During his long career, Sonny Terry performed and recorded with the Reverend Gary Davis, Mississippi John Hurt, champion Jack Dupree, Big Bill Brunzi, and nearly all the famous folk singers of the 50s and 60s. He sometimes sang while he played, and by controlling his breath and cupping his hands over the harmonica, he was able to modulate from key to key. Elements of Sonny's whooping style can still be heard in harp players today not only thanks to his massive recording catalog, but also in his 1975 book, Sonny Terry's Country Blues Harmonica, where he movingly talks on his life story and details his harmonica techniques with his own crude tablature system. He was inducted into the Blues Hall of Fame the same year of his passing. A few years younger, Brownie was a sort of bluesman who enjoyed changing with the times. He said, having a band behind me gives me much more freedom. Though he had moderate success with his own blues outfits, his collaboration with Sonny was exponentially more successful. But Brownie's skill and versatility on guitar, playing a variety of traditional blues and folk music, as well as the progressive elements of rock and roll, rhythm and blues, and more, is simply unmatched. Brownie established a guitar school called Home of the Blues in Harlem in 1942 
as well as the Blues is the Truth Foundation. Brownie was inducted into the Blues Hall of Fame a year after his death in 1997. Do it right now. Brownie was short and extroverted, while Sonny was tall and basically spoke only when spoken to. Like a positive and negative charge, Sonny and Brownie were opposites that stuck with each other, likely because of their success. Because of their mutual upbringing around the Piedmont blues, a unique style of blues, where whites and blacks lived in close proximity and shared a variety of music, they blurred the lines of race for many listeners. Their celebrated career together with hundreds of recordings across more than a dozen record labels, inspired the likes of Guy Davis, Eric Clapton, Taj Mahal, and Bob Dylan, just to name a few. In 1982, Sonny and Brownie were among the very first recipients of the National Heritage Fellowship, awarded by the National Endowment for the Arts, which is the United States government's highest honor in the folk and traditional arts, making them national treasures. You're listening to American Songcatcher. In the small, pastoral Minnesota town of Austin, Charlie Parr was born in the spring of 1967. The Parr family were blue-collar meat packers who lived paycheck to paycheck, but were wealthy in a hardworking attitude. Charlie's father grew up with 17 siblings on a tenant farm in northern Iowa, and as a teenager, he left home to ride freight cars around every corner of the country through the Great Depression. He found work shoveling animal parts in Austin, Minnesota, and settled there, becoming active in the union and starting his family. His stories weren't lost on young Charlie, who got into his share of trouble. Once, he tried to dig a tunnel under the house. Another time, he poured lighter fluid all over his Lincoln logs, then set it on fire. His father also had an extensive, cultured record collection for the times, and when Charlie was about seven, his impressionable mind dove in. Seasoned with the Beatles, Grateful Dead, Old Country Western Greats, Woody Guthrie and Lead Belly, the assortment was vast and nuanced. But three records in particular nearly broke his father's needle from being constantly played. Lightning Hopkins's Blues in My Bottle, Texas Sharecropper and Songster by Mance Lipscomb, and a 1968 live record from Albert King called Live Wire, Blues Power. Everybody understands the blues. Are you listening? The local library boasted another collection that proved vital to his self-discovery as a musician. And that's where he found the Holy Grail, Harry Smith's Anthology of American Folk Music. You can plant your cotton and you won't get a heaven of sin on 
arguably the two that have been the most influential on his guitar playing, which started at age eight by listening to old records, are Man Slipscomb and Mississippi John Hurt. He said, their style was really the style I tried to figure out how to play, and it's still what I'm trying to figure out how to play. As a shy, bookish kid who was listening to the type of music that no other kid he knew was listening to, he mostly kept to himself. But something ate at him. Between the ages of 13 and 16, Charlie had several suicide attempts that led to a clinical diagnosis of depression, landing in the state hospital four times between those years. He was teased incessantly by schoolmates who thought his hospitalizations were over something made up. Charlie said, it had nothing to do with sadness at all. I wish I felt sadness. At least you feel something. For me, it manifested into this harsh and cruel negative space. Melancholy creates and blankness destroys. Even though his parents didn't fully understand, they did everything that they could to be supportive. That wasn't easy, of course, as most teenagers can be a handful. Charlie rebelled from the music that he grew up on and found solace in early hardcore punk rock, such as Husker Du, The Minutemen, and others. His father soon pointed out that, quote, The Clash is really just loud folk music. Charlie resented that in his rebellion, but it didn't take long for him to fall back into the folk and blues that even today he still has a visceral reaction to, hitting him right in the gut. Wandering round from door to door, still a man in in the ninth grade, during the early 1980s, Charlie started drinking and skipping class. He wound up in jail for urinating on public property and underage drinking. Assuming he'd be a drifter for the rest of his life, Charlie dropped out of high school. His therapist thought differently, though, and urged him to start studying to get his GED while on the night shift at the gas station that he worked at. To his surprise, Charlie scored high on the test, and he decided that college wouldn't be such a bad idea after all. However, his musical priorities were ambling their way to the forefront. Charlie's first gig lacked foreshadowing. At a bar called Lefties in Austin, his set ended early after a bar fight erupted between a group of people who didn't want to hear him play. Before going to college, he went on a search to find one of his musical heroes, a traditional folk and country blues musician named Spider John Corner, part of the trio Corner, Ray, and Glover, who were essential during the 60s folk and blues revival. Now I hear funny buzz and Sound like my old Charlie found Spider about 100 miles north of home in Minneapolis. At the time, the Twin Cities boasted a vibrant scene of jazz, funk, alt-country, punk, and hardcore, and nearly every night you could go out and see amazing music. Spider had a Sunday night folk and blues residency in a hip area of town called West Bank at the Viking Bar. Seeing his hero performing the music that he grew up on changed Charlie's life and bridged a gap that made music seem more tangible Charlie said that Spider's rhythm in particular is kind of like throwing a wet rug into a washing machine. Quote, It's got a rhythm. It's never right, but it's always right on. It took me a little while to let my hand go limp 
and just feel it. He left home for good and relocated to a rooming house in the West Bank. She's been all around the country making honey now, mama, and she's Charlie enrolled and dropped out of a few classes at different local colleges, and eventually received a BA in philosophy from Augsburg College in 1992. After a few menial jobs, he was hired by the Salvation Army to do homeless outreach, and immediately felt at home in his own skin. He drove around and befriended people living on the streets, providing basic needs like food, blankets, coffee, clothes, and a safe space for conversation. The kindness that Charlie experienced among them gave him a newfound respect for human resilience that forever impacted his life. If you're sleeping outside in the winter, the tendency, in my experience, is to make sure that your neighbor is warm, he said. I saw that time and again, and it helped me far more than I ever helped anyone. After Charlie's father was diagnosed with lung cancer, he passed away just six months later at the age of 72. The loss was immense and pivotal. I didn't get enough time with him, he said. I hadn't written an original song up to that point. I was concerned with learning how to play songs that had been recorded by these old guys. And when my dad died, the way I dealt with grief was that it started coming out in songs. To this day, that remains the musical thing that happened to me that changed everything. I don't know what would have happened otherwise. By the late 1990s, seeking a lower cost of living, Charlie moved to Duluth, Minnesota, home to Bob Dylan, found work again with the homeless, and gained traction in the local scene by performing anywhere and everywhere in the evenings. After years of believing that songwriting was daunting, his early lyrics were based on stories that his father had told about his life, with melodies inspired by the old songs from his father's record collection. He was reinventing himself and those old tunes by reflecting his father's life and making the stories his own. Well, I wish I was a mole in the ground. But well, I wish I was a mole in the ground. As a mole in the ground, well, I'm dead man down. Lord, I wish I was a mole in the ground. In 2002, Charlie released his first two albums, Criminals and Sinners, recorded in a basement studio with Shaky Ray Records as well as 1922, which featured the old gospel number Farther Along, Mississippi John Hurt's classic Lewis Collins, and one of Charlie's most beloved songs to date, 1922 Blues. Six years after its release, 1922 Blues was used in a commercial for Vodafone, one of the largest European telecommunications companies in the world. And nearly overnight, Charlie was a hit in both Australia and New Zealand. After successful tours in both countries, in 2010, three of Charlie's songs were used in the Australian neo-Western thriller film, Red Hill. Well, rain came 
on my windshield. In 2006, Charlie was diagnosed with focal dystonia, a neurological condition that affected his ability to play the guitar and has no cure. The specialist that he consulted recommended giving up the guitar for six months to a year, but that wasn't an option in Charlie's mind, so he adapted. And just like the great Piedmont blues pioneers, relied on only his thumb and pointer finger. Several albums and innumerable performances later, in the summer of 2018, Charlie was on vacation with his family and was out skateboarding with his daughter along the shores of Lake Superior. He fell and took more than just a tumble, shattering his right shoulder. Following an invasive five-hour-long surgery, which left him with a metal plate and eight pins, he went to the surgeon and said, Look, man, I've got a gig. The surgeon replied, I don't think you're going to be playing a gig anytime soon. The doctor thought it would take anywhere from six months to a year to recover, and there was a possibility that he would never play guitar again. Distraught at the prospect of losing the very thing that saved him, Charlie managed to hoist the guitar onto his legs and play it lap style, which was good enough. He dedicated time to physical therapy and listened to music all day, every day, stuff that he hadn't heard since he was a kid. And as he recalled, I just thought about it. Just seven weeks after surgery, Charlie was playing in front of an audience again, though the first several concerts were painful. At that point, he was still adapting to mitigate the pain playing classical style with the guitar resting between his legs. Like all of his albums, his self-titled release in 2019 portrayed this period in his life with humility, resilience, and raw, unadulterated honesty. I can't stand the sight of any of them. I wish I could sell this place. I wish I could buy a boat. Charlie's most recent release, 2021's Last of the Better Days Ahead, a collaboration with the esteemed Smithsonian Folkways, sounds familiar, yet resoundingly new. Of the record, he said, it's a way for me to refer to the times that I'm living in. I'm getting on in years, experiencing a shift in perspective that was once described by my mom as a time when we turn from gazing into the future to gazing back at the past, as if we're adrift in the current, slowly turning around. At 55 years old, without any formal lessons, releasing 16 albums to date, recorded in various places like warehouses, garages, basements, and storefronts, with the same approach of a live show, Charlie has been rewriting the definitions of an independent musician's journey and success since he first set foot on stage. He's lost his way, his marriage, mobility in most of his fingers, and his ego, mostly. After his health scare, he's living more mindfully, no alcohol, on a vegan diet. On tours, he saves money by bringing a cooler and getting food from the venues that he plays in. He'll wrap leftovers up in tortillas and tinfoil, then heat it on the engine manifold of his van while driving to the next gig. Hi. 
The one thing that I've kind of done on purpose is play all the time, he said. I don't want to do anything else. I'm extremely lazy. All I want to do is play the guitar. Depression is his biggest bug. It didn't just leave when he grew out of being a teenager and came back in full force in his late 40s, right before he made his 15th album, Dog, manifesting in night terrors, blurry vision, clumsiness, little concentration, and a loss of interest in everything, making him avoid everyone. On that, Charlie said, I've had a few more suicide attempts and decided to actively start seeking some sort of therapy for it, and it's been going well. So that's what I do. I play music, and I practice kind of a walking meditation daily. That helps me a lot. My career is more like a balled up Kleenex in a windstorm than anything else, Charlie says. The masterpiece of my life is just going to be the entire act of traveling around playing these songs. Though Charlie may not feel comfortable admitting it, he's a part of a greater movement to preserve the legacy of the music that he grew up on, the very music that his father bestowed on him through that old record collection. Say a man is made out of mud. A poor man's made out of muscle and blood. Muscle and blood and skin and bones. A mind that's weak and a back that's strong. You load six. That's all for episode seven of season two. Huge thanks to the community on Patreon. This is not possible without you. If you want to support this program financially because you have a little extra, but you don't want to commit to monthly payments, you can do so via Venmo or PayPal at American Songcatcher, or click the link in the show notes. You can follow American Songcatcher on Instagram and TikTok, at American Songcatcher. Big thanks to Smithsonian Folkways for all the crucial work that they do in preserving the legacy of these artists and these songs, the Library of Congress's complete national recording registry and archive of folk song. Our intro song is Payday by Mississippi John Hurt from the Today album. Our outro song is 16 Tons, performed by Tennessee Ernie Ford, originally written by Merle Travis. This episode was produced, researched, edited, recorded, and distributed by myself, Nicholas Edward Williams, with writing assistance from Jack Browning. In the words of Billie Holiday, if I'm going to sing like someone else, then I don't need to sing at all. Here's the songs of old. May they live on forever. See you next time on American Songcatcher. Don't you call me cause I can't go I owe my soul to the company store If you see me coming better step aside A lot of men didn't, a lot of men died One fist of iron, the other of steel If the right one don't get you then the left one will You load 16 tons, what do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt. St. Peter, don't
don't you call me cause I can't go I owe my soul To the company store 